Well, welcome here again, everyone. It's great to see you guys here this evening. Uh, like I said, this is our very first evening service, and uh, what we're going to do on these nights is we're going to do a, an interactive teaching style. You can see here I'm on the floor. I'm not up there on the stage. Um, this is kind of a, a, a two-way conversation teaching. This is kind of one of my favorite styles of teaching. <clears throat> and, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I kind of have somewhere I want to go. I have a kind of a pathway, of, a plan of what I'm going to teach through. But I want to ask questions, and then you can ask questions as well. And so this gives you an opportunity to kind of interact with the teaching. It also gives you an opportunity to be a part of the teaching because you can contribute to what, what's going on here. And so you can ask questions and, and, and I can then see if you're understanding what I'm teaching. And then, and then also you can contribute as I'm asking questions. And, uh, and yet I'm still kind of leading the way. So hopefully that makes sense and we kind of get the, the hang of it. When you say something to me, I'm going to, I'm going to try to repeat it so that we can all hear it, because sometimes we might have some trouble with that. But we'll see, we'll see how this goes. And what I want to do as we at least start this series, there's all kinds of things that I want to teach on eventually, but as we get started here, what I want to do is teach on six things that make our church distinct. Um, these, are, these are six foundational beliefs that drive everything that we do as a local church. And so I want to kind of start with these six things. We, we can call them core convictions. I think at some points I'm calling them kind of foundational beliefs. Uh, but the core convictions, foundational beliefs, that's kind of what we want to start with. And what I'd like to, to do now, and I wasn't expecting visitors from other churches necessarily here, but welcome, I'm glad you're here. But what I wanted to just do is start off by asking you know, we've been together six, seven months now. What, what are some things maybe that you've noticed about our church, maybe that's different than the way that, that other churches that you've been a part of in the past have done things? So go ahead. I just want a list of, you know, just, just things. What have you noticed? What would you guess are foundational truths about our church? Expository preaching, good. What, what is expository preaching? You don't have to answer that one just directly, Chrissy, but what, what, is, what, is, what do we mean by expository preaching? And you know, we're just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stand here blank until somebody talks, you know? So we're, we're, we're just gonna, we gotta warm up to this. This is kinda, maybe it's a little bit scary. That's what I was gonna say is, you know, I never do, unless I'm just key teasing, I never go, heresy! You know, I, <laughs> I never, I, I, I will graciously kind of correct you if I think we're, we're, that something's wrong. And so, and, and you'll get used to me doing this, but um, what else? So what is expository preaching? Mat- explaining the word meticulously and thoroughly. Okay, yeah, yeah, explaining the word, I think that's a, that's a fair definition of expository preaching. Um, what we're trying to do when we do expository preaching is I'm trying to, to see what the meaning of the text is, and then I, I'm taking that text, so I've got a text that I'm preaching. I see, I, I'm explaining the meaning to you. I'm 
then trying to illustrate that meaning if I remember to do some illustrations about it and so that you can understand what that text is saying. And then I'm applying it to you so that, so that you can obey what God says in his word. So that's, I think that's fair to say that that's a characteristic or a, a, a fundamental thing about our church that, that may or may not be different from other churches. Also with that, we're going typically verse by verse through scripture, although sometimes I'll, I'll jump off and, and hit a different scripture than we normally do. Uh, what else, what else is distinct about our church that you would say? Yeah, communion. Yeah, we do the Lord's Supper every Sunday, um, very frequently, which is, which is when I went through that, we, we talked about that that's, seems to be the practice of the early church is that they would do that quite frequently, although there's freedom on that. Anything else? There's, this is like, this is the easy one because there's no right or wrong answer, I, I don't think. Gospel-centered, yeah, yeah. It's we really do try to make sure that everything is gospel-centered, and actually, that that's going to tie directly into the third foundational belief about our church is that that what what I'm going to call a biblical view of man that that because we understand that man is sinful and that man is depraved and that man's only hope is through the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. Everything we do as a local church wants to be focused on that because we understand what, what man really needs. And actually, even what we're going to talk about tonight is, is really ultimately what man really needs. And, and, and that is um, a high view of God. So let me give you the, the things that, I would, that I've kind of come up with for what distinguishes us, what makes us maybe, maybe different from other churches that you've been a part of, and, and the six things that we're going to cover in the first six Sunday evening services. And, and the first one is, and that's what we're going to do tonight, is a high view of God. Um, <clears throat> I hope that this really characterizes us as a local church, is that we have a really high view of God. And I'll talk about what we mean about, by that as we kind of go on tonight. The second one kind of comes on that expository preaching thing, and that's a, a sufficient view of Scripture. And so we believe a lot of things about Scripture. We believe that it's authoritative. We believe that it's inspired by God, and therefore it's inerrant and infallible. And these are the kinds of things that I'll define in the second section. We also believe that it's sufficient. That is, that what God has given us in his word is everything that we need for life and godliness. It's everything that we need to kind of to teach us how to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. And so we don't need to go to other sources, other streams, other places. We don't need any worldly wisdom added to that. What we really need is the gospel. And, uh, and, and, and then as God works through his word, he sanctifies us and makes us holy. So a high view of God, a sufficient view of scripture. Then the third one I already mentioned, a biblical view of man. Um, the depravity of man and the gospel then really if, is, is a central foundational thing about our church. Uh, another thing, the fourth one that we're going to look at is what I called here a robust view of the church. I don't know if that's the word I'll use eventually, but uh, uh, we got to understand what the church is, right? If we're going to have some foundational beliefs about the church, 
One of those better be what the church actually is, what we're supposed to do. And, uh, and so we'll talk about that. A strong view of church leadership. We'll talk about church leadership and government and the structure of our church. That's something that might be unique. And then finally, we'll talk about a clear view of doctrine. And we might even from there go and, and go into some of the things that are in our statement of faith and kind of go through those things. But those are the, the six things that I think really characterize our church, core convictions that we are absolutely committed to. Now, there, there might be other more particular things like expository preachings not on there, but I think everything that we do as a local church can fit in within those six things. So um, those are the foundations that, that our church sits on. Now, um, as we think about what, what distinguishes us as a true church, or as a, as a local church, as, what distinguishes us as a local church? Does anybody know the the marks of a true church? Kind of the historical things that mark a true biblical church. Anybody want to just take a wild guess? What might be a mark of a? What makes a church the church and not a cult? Maybe is another way to ask that. What's that, Philip? The five? Mm, mm-hmm. those, those are the five solas. Those are five things that, that kind of characterize what happened in the Reformation. And those are good things, but not necessarily what I was looking for this time. So anyone, anyone, anyone else want to take a guess? What, what's a mark of a true church? Discipleship, Lauren said, I, you know what? I better just, I just better give you guys the marks of the true church. And that's okay. This is, this, see, this helps me now. I go, okay. Uh, hey, we, this is something that we need to kind of get and, and understand as a church. And so that's why we do this interactive style. Um, the, the, in the Reformation, the reformers, and so we could say Luther, Calvin, and really, I think everyone through church history has agreed on this, that the, the marks of a church, and there's two or three, is one is the gospel, right? So if a church doesn't have the gospel, they are no longer a true church, right? They are either an apostate church or a cult because they're not preaching the truth about salvation, okay? So the gospel, and then the other part is the a right practice of the ordinances or the sacraments, okay? So the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so if there's the gospel preaching and the, the Lord's Supper. Lauren, just tell him I'm busy right now. <laughs> um, the gospel and, and uh, a right practice of the sacraments. Now, some people in church history added a third one, which, which, is, which is discipline. And, um, but most, most people throughout history would have seen church discipline as, as part of the Lord's Supper. So... Um, None other than John Calvin said this. This is the first time I've ever quoted John Calvin from our church, in case you're visiting. Uh, he says, Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. 
And then he says, if it, a little bit later on, he says, if it has the ministry of the word and honors it, if it has the administration of the sacraments, it deserves without a doubt to be held and considered a church. So the gospel and the, the Lord's Supper and baptism, those are the marks of a church. So where the word of God is purely preached and where the word of God is obeyed, I would argue that those six things that I just said, right? A high view of God. Uh, what did I have there? A high view of God, a sufficient view of scripture, a biblical view of man, a, a, a proper view of the church, a strong view of Christian leadership and church leadership and, a, and an understanding of sound doctrine. Those things will follow if the word of God is purely preached. And so those are the, the historical marks of a church. And then we have these six things that are really going to characterize what we do as a local church. And, and these things are going to be part of, of what we call our philosophy of ministry. And, and really this whole class that we're doing, this whole time that we're doing, is because for Grace Advance, I had to do a philosophy of ministry. I had to write a philosophy of ministry. And, and a philosophy of ministry is a, a document that describes what we do and why we do it. So, so for Grace Advance, I got to explain what do we do and why do we do it. And when we come to the why we do it, those are those six things, those six foundational things. Now, every church and, and really every, every person has a philosophy of ministry. It's just that very often it's not written out or explained or taught. Um, because everybody does something, right? Every church does something. And so sometimes they just haven't thought about why they do that thing or, or actually even what they should be doing. Now, why would, let's just, why would you think it's important to write? Why do you think Grace Advance makes us write a philosophy of ministry? Why would that be important? Yeah, uh, Pete says to show that, that we have a clear understanding. Yeah, that's, I think that's part of it. Anything else? Why, why, should we, why is this going to be helpful for us as a local church? To, to really clearly teach and write out what we do and why we do it. Daryl says for new members, yeah, so that they can understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, right? Yeah, that's really good. In fact, this... Not, not as extensive as this, but we're going to do this for the new members class when we finally kind of institute new members for the first time. We'll do a, a, a quicker, shorter version of this same thing. Any other ideas there? Yeah, accountability. Now, this is great. If, I, if I'm doing something that doesn't align with what I say we're doing, then you guys can go, hey, Mike, why are you doing that? It's not in our philosophy of ministry. This isn't what something... This doesn't seem to align with what we teach and, and what we said we would do. That's great. Accountability. Um, you know, some of the things that, that I wrote down is it's just that so that we think through it really clearly, right? It's so easy just to kind of come along and just do something that maybe you've always done or that you think is a good idea without really thinking, is this thing that we're doing warranted by God's word? Is this thing important for us to do? Is this part of what God has told us to do? Or are we just doing this because we just have always done it? 
And, and that, that often happens in churches is that they just kind of do things, but they haven't really thought about why they're doing it. They don't really know if it fits the purpose of the church. And they just kind of, you just get busy doing stuff and you kind of forget about the whole foundation behind it. So hopefully by, by teaching these things, we'll kind of, we'll be clear together of what we're trying to do. Now, if we, again, if we don't write or teach on these things, we're just going to do things for, for various reasons, maybe biblical, maybe unbiblical. Uh, maybe we'll do things because of tradition or to please men and, uh, and things will creep in that, that aren't, aren't biblical and aren't helpful. So the first foundational distinctive then of our church the, 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 the question that we're asking here is why we do what we do. And, and one of the reasons that we're going to do everything that we do as a local church is because we have a high view of God. So everything that we do as a local church should kind of, should be obvious that it flows out of this, that we have a high view of God. Now in men's ministry, Saturday or what Wednesday morning, 630. Here's a little advertisement for men's ministry. If you haven't been with us for our men's ministry, 630 in the morning, every Wednesday morning, we're talking about the attributes of God and uh, kind of studying that. Uh, it's been a, a good study. It's been helpful for me. But so the men should have an answer here as we kind of think about this. What, as we've been studying this, what attribute or maybe two attributes has really impacted you in our study of God. So if you if you've been part of men's ministry, we've been looking at the attributes. Any any attribute in particular that really stood out to you or was helpful in your life for some reason? And if you have not been part of our men's ministry, you could just tell me an attribute that's been a, a, an encouragement to you lately. So so go ahead. Okay, God's aseity. And if you're going to use a word like aseity, I'm going to have to ask you to define that for me. What is that, Phil? So God's aseity, Phil says it's that, that God is sufficient of himself. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any help from anyone. Uh, why has that been impactful for you, Phil? A higher view of God. Yeah, God does not need Phil. God needs nobody. He is sufficient in and of himself. And so we don't really contribute anything to him because he has everything. Everything actually comes from him to start with. And so that's, that's a great attribute of God, that he is sufficient. The, most, the, the easier word on that one is that he is self-sufficient. Um, great. Anyone else, an attribute of God that's impacted you in our study or one that's impacted you that's not in our study for the ladies? I'm, I'm going to wait for at least one more. So you're going <laughs> to, somebody's almost got one on the tip of their tongue, I'm sure. God's simpleness, yeah. Uh, does anyone want to help us define God's, the, 
The simplicity of God, there's an attribute that maybe some people haven't even heard of before. It sounds contradictory to a high view of God to say that God is simple, but what what that means is that God isn't made up of parts, that God just is, and that's kind of tied to his aseity as well. God is, and so he is righteous, he is holy, he is power, he doesn't have power, he is power. Um, you know, he is holy. And all of those things aren't just various parts of God. They're various ways of looking at all of God's one essence. And so God's simplicity really, I think, really does give us a higher view of God because we understand God is a simple being. And that just means that he, he is, and he is all that he is in, in, in what the, the theologians called he is pure act. So he just, and, and, and it's, it's a difficult one to explain, but I, I think that's a, a helpful attribute. Thanks for that, Jermaine. Anyway, maybe let's do one more. Let's, somebody give me a little bit of an easier attribute, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, the holiness of God, I heard somebody say. Thanks, guys. The holiness of God. How did that impact you? <laughs> well, thanks for giving me one. Anyways, the holiness of God. God is holy. And what we, we actually learned that that means is that he is devoted to himself, that he is, um, he is other, he is separate from us. And yet before the, the foundation of the world, before there wasn't us, before there was a creation, God was holy then. And what that meant is that he was devoted to himself in the three persons of the Trinity. And so God's holiness means that he is committed to his glory and to his honor and that he and tied in with that he is separate from all sin and moral stain that he not only is utterly righteous in and of himself but also that he abhors he hates any unrighteousness anything that is unlike himself and so these are these are attributes of god you know and, and and I think these are really important as we start to think about who God is and having a high view of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer famously said this, quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, and, and portentous really means just important, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. He says this is true not only of the Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. And again, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And so what we think about God is really, really important. And I agree with Tozer. It, I think it's the most important thing about us. What do we think about when we think of God? Do we have a high or low view about God? And so we want to ask ourselves this evening, what does the Bible say 
about God. And we'll look at some scriptures now. Let's, let's start. And, and I don't know if you want to turn or if you just want to let me go there, but Psalm 145 and verse three, we're going to look at some scriptures that just kind of begin to give us a bit of a, an understanding of who our God is. Psalm 145 verse three, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate, David says. But great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. The idea there of that word unsearchable is that you could never trace out the greatness of our God. You could spend your entire life, you can spend infinity forever searching out the greatness of God and, and looking for how great is this God, and you will never come to the end of his greatness in that search. That's really an amazing thing about God. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 asks this question, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And again, we see that his understanding is unsearchable. The, the wisdom, the knowledge of God is untraceable. We could never track down the ends of that either. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And so we think about God's love, his chesed, his, his loyal, loving kindness. And it's, it's so great, it's as high as the heavens are above the earth. Now, we can't even measure how high the heavens are above the earth, nor can you measure the greatness of God's love towards those who fear him. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 3, another key verse on God. Moses there says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Then he says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now there's a, a lot in that verse, but what I wanted to, to really draw to your attention is not only the greatness of God that Moses says to ascribe to him, but he says his work is perfect. What God does is perfect. Second Samuel twenty two thirty one very similarly says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. And so again, God, his work is perfect. Second Samuel twenty two thirty one. his way is perfect. And in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. And so from these verses, we can see that God is the perfect being. And the Bible describes him as perfect. His way is perfect. His work is perfect. And he himself is perfect. And so nothing can be added to him to make him better than he is, right? If he is perfect, we can't add anything to him 
Or there's nothing to be taken away from him to make him better because he is already perfect. There's, there's nothing that can be added or taken from him. And God's perfection means then that God is the greatest, the highest, the most magnificent being imaginable. God is the greatest, highest, most magnificent being imaginable. And uh, 1100 uh, century, or what are you, I don't know, 11th century, is that the 10th century then? 10th century Anselm described God this way. He said, he quote, God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. Because he's perfect, there's nothing greater than him. We can't think of a greater being, right? If he was perfect and we could think of something greater, then he would no longer be the perfect being. And so he is something than which nothing greater can be thought. And the foundation of, of this idea of Anselm, again, is that God is the perfect being. <clears throat> I think this is from this is from Herman Bavink, but some of this might be from my. I'm not sure where I got this. If this is from Herman Bavink or if this is me, uh, I wrote down. He is infinite in essence. Oh yeah, this is so. Sorry, this is me. That was that was like the worst introduction. Here, I'm going to quote myself here. Uh, he is infinite in essence. Whatever whatever scripture ascribes to God. It ascribes to him in the absolute sense, and, and I got that from Herman Bavink. But w- when, when Scripture calls God righteous or holy or just or whatever it calls him, he just is those things. And so it ascribes him those things in this absolute sense. And so again, God doesn't merely have goodness or justice or power. He is power. He is just. He is righteousness. He is, you know everywhere. All of these things about God describe just who he is in and of himself. And all the greatness that we see in any creature, you know, you look at a lion and you see the power of that lion, or you look at uh, a person and you see the intelligence of that person, or whatever you see in the created order, that came from God. And that exists in God in an infinite degree, right? So we're just thinking about the greatness of God here. And, and what all this leads us to, or, or, or what it should lead us to understand is that God is the highest good. God is the highest good. In Latin, they, they called him the summum bonum, the, the, the chiefest good, A.W. Pink translates that, the chiefest good. Now I'm going to read from Herman Bavink, and he says this, and, and this give, kind of gives you a taste of what the men have to endure at 6.30 on uh, Wednesday mornings. But just try to listen to Herman Bavink here explain the goodness of God. He says, quote, According to Scripture, God is the sum total of all perfections. And in brackets he says, that is, he is, God is metaphysical goodness. God is goodness. He goes on, he says, All virtues are present in him in an absolute sense. He quotes Luke uh, eighteen nineteen: No one is good but God alone. And that's Jesus talking there in Luke 18, 19, Mark 10, 18 as well. He says, Inasmuch as he himself is the absolutely good and perfect one, he may not love anything else except with a view to himself. 
He may not and cannot be content with less than absolute perfection. When he loves others, he loves himself in them, his own virtues, works, and gifts. For the same reason, he is also blessed in himself as the sum of all goodness, all perfection, end quote. A couple pages later, he says again this, he says, quote, but that which is good in itself is also good for others. And God, as the perfect and blessed one, is the supreme good for his creatures. And he quotes Augustine here, and he says, quoting Augustine, the, the supreme good of all things, the supreme good that all things strive for, the fount of all good things, the good of every good, the one necessary and all sufficient good, the end of all goods. Pavink goes on, he says, he alone is the good to be enjoyed. And then he says, especially Augustine frequently describes God as the supreme good. In him alone is everything creatures seek and need. And then he says this, he says, quote, thus Christian theologians have at all times located the supreme good in God. Furthermore, as the supreme good, God is also the overflowing fountain of all goods. And then he quotes this saint called Athen Agoras, who I've never even heard of before, um, but a very early church father. He's very early in, in the works of the church fathers. He says, Athen Agoras says this, quote, since God is perfectly good, he is unceasingly beneficent. And so because God is good, he does good. In fact, there's a, a great verse, I can't remember where it is, but it says that God is good and he does good. Uh, and so just continuing with Bavink, he says, no good exists in any creature except that which comes from and through God. He is the efficient, exemplary, and final cause of all good, however diverse it may be in creatures. And so the idea here is that God is the source of all good, and he is good in and of himself. And, and I hope that, that this kind of begins to, to show us where God fits in, in the hierarchy of things. Where, where does God fit? Uh, the, the psalmist, Psalm seventy three twenty five says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so Psalm 73, the Asaph there recognizes that God is his chief good, that he has nothing else besides God, that there's nothing else worthwhile besides God. In fact, Psalm 73 begins by, he says, my foot almost slipped because I was kind of envious of the wicked people in the world. And and then as he goes through the psalm and realizes that the wicked people are going to end up in hell, Asaph confesses at the end that, you know what, there's nothing good in this universe besides God himself. Or Romans 11.33 says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be 
repaid. And so Paul there just marvels at the, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God that, that he doesn't need anything, that, that he doesn't uh, need any help. Nobody has ever given anything to him, but everything that we have comes from him and through him. And then he actually says that in Romans eleven thirty six. He says, and why don't you turn there, Romans eleven thirty six. You you probably need to see this one with your with your eyes. <clears throat> Paul says there, for from him and through him and to him are all things, <clears throat> to him be glory forever, amen. And so we see those prepositions there, from him, through him, and to him. And, and what we can draw from this is that God is the source of all things, or the cause of all things. All things come from him. God is the agent and or the means of all things, everything is through him, right? We don't have anything that comes to us except that it comes to us through this God. And then all things are to him. And the idea of that preposition too is that all things, he is the purpose of all things or he is the end of all things. And so really God is the source of all things. He's the agent of all things. He's the end of all things. All things are about and for and to him. He, he's everything. God is everything. And God, knowing this, these things about himself, knowing all things perfectly, right? He has, he has this perfect knowledge. He perfectly knows everything that there is in this universe. He perfectly knows everything about himself. And because of that, he then knows that he himself is the greatest good. And he knows that all other things are good because of his goodness. And so I I wrote in our philosophy of ministry statement, I wrote this, I wrote that God himself recognizes the truth about himself and does all that he does with a view to himself. God cannot be content with less than perfection and no creature is perfect in the absolute sense. Therefore, God puts his own glory first in everything he does. There is nothing higher for God to set his affections on than himself. And by aiming at his own glory in all that he does, God then leads us to the greatest possible good for the creature, for us. When God reveals his glory to us, we are pointed to the greatest possible object of our worship. And then I say it's all about God. This is what I mean when I say a high view of God, that it's really all about him. Everything belongs to God. Everything is from him and for him. And so Grace Bible Fellowship, we belong to the Lord. Grace Bible Fellowship exists because of him, and we exist for him. We exist for the glory of God, and really everything in the universe exists for the glory of God. Now, what I want to kind of do with the, the time that we have left is just to, to kind of dig into this a little bit, because often we can say something like that, like everything is for the glory of God, or, or we're going to do something to glorify God. But what I want to do with the rest of our time tonight is just dig into what, the, what does that mean? So let me just ask a, a question again, back to the, the little bit interactive 
what, what is the glory of God? Does anybody want to answer that? What is the glory? Have you ever, have you ever used that word, you know, that you're going to do something to glorify God? Give me, give me at least hands up. Has anyone ever said they're going to glorify God or something along those lines? Lauren did. How many people believe in honesty in church? <laughs> Only a couple. <laughs> We're still working on that. Hey, how? <laughs> I, I got that from one of my seminary professors. On, everyone, honesty in church, anyone? Come on now. Okay, we're getting there. That's good. So anyone ever use that phraseology, the glory of God? Okay, that's, that's getting better. Thank you very much. See, we'll, we'll, it's going to take a while for us to warm up to these kind of nights, but, um, but this is good. So anyone want to take a, a guess? What does it mean? The, let's just, I think it's easier to say what is the glory of God than to say what it means to glorify him. But what, what, is, what is the glory of God? Something that reflects him or his character. Yeah, that, I think that's good. I think really good with character there. Has to do with the character of God. Anybody else want to say something? I was teasing Jody. Jody kind of probably knows my, my definitions already just from all the times I've taught on this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about and teach on, by the way. Phil. Phil. Okay, Phil says, when we say we want to glorify God, we want other people to think highly of him as well. I think that's really, yeah, I think that's true. So I think that's definitely a part of what it means to glorify God is that we, we want to let other people see what he's like. I'm trying not to give away too much here. Anyone else want to? The glory of God. He must increase and I must decrease. Yeah, that's what, that's what John the Baptist said. Um, I think that's, that's kind of the, the view. Although it's interesting to think about that. He must increase. I must decrease. Well, if God is the perfect being, then there can be no increase, right? Now, John the Baptist isn't, I'm not correcting John the Baptist theology there because that's the, that's the way that we use that word, right? We want, him to be seen for who he is. Um, we're not adding anything to him by glorifying him because he is sufficient or his aseity, as Phil pointed out earlier, he, he is say he is from himself. He is everything that he needs from himself. So he doesn't, we can't give him anything by glorifying him. But what, what's happening when we glorify him is we're recognizing something about him. And so... Um, Okay, well, yeah, um, let, me, let me just go from my notes here. In the Old Testament, the, the word translated glory is kavod. And, and kavod originally means something that is weighty or, or heavy. And the idea was that it was heavy on the scale. And so if something was kavod, it would, it would weigh down the one end of the scale. And, and so there, there was some some heft to it. And so if you think about scales, right, that was, that was how they, they measured things for like financial transactions. And so something was, if something was kavod, it was heavy, it was weighty. That meant that it was, it was valuable. It was maybe important, we could say. And so 
um, kavod also carries this idea of splendor. And often in the Old Testament, when the glory of God would appear, there was, there was this visible manifestation of God's glory or of God's splendor or of God's majesty. In the New Testament, as we come to the New Testament, the word it translated glory is doxa, and it, it, re- it refers to, quote, the condition of being bright or shining, and hence brightness, sh- uh, splendor, radiance. As such, it also refers to a state of being magnificent, and hence greatness or splendor. And I, I didn't footnote that, but I probably got that from a, a lexicon uh, on the word doxa. So, the ideas there of splendor, greatness, something being magnificent, but also to this idea of a, a shining brightness or a radiance. Now, in the Old Testament especially, God's glory would sometimes appear in certain places and there would be a, a visible manifestation of his, of his greatness. And there'd be this bright, shining light. And sometimes the priests, excuse me, the priests couldn't worship because of the, the greatness of this visible manifestation. And, and yet, that visible manifestation of God's greatness is not his, is not his necessary glory. Um, you know, if we say it this way, when, when we, I think we could all admit, and we'll look at this in a minute, that, that everything that God does is for his glory, right? I, I think that's a, a maxim that we could just take from Scripture, and we'll, we'll see that in a minute. But Everything God does is for his glory, but not everything God does is for the visible manifestation of his greatness, right? Can you agree with that? So there's a a visible manifestation of the glory, but God has, his glory is different than that. God, um, I already said that. So hopefully you're you're following me there. So what is God's glory? Well, let me just give it to you here in the, the simpler definition of God's glory is the glory of God is the sum of all of his attributes. So if you take all of God's attributes, his righteousness, his holiness, his aseity, his independence, his everything about him, and, and you put it all together, that is the glory of God. It, it really is who God is. It, it's the, the fullness of who God is. Or a, a really great definition that was just super helpful in my life, and, and hopefully you can, can get this. It's the goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes. So that's what we just already said. The goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes, manifested to his creatures. So there's this revealing of these attributes, and responded to by them such that God is seen to be weighty, honored, majestic, and praiseworthy. And that's from one of my theology professors in at the Master Seminary. The goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes, manifested to his creatures, and responded to by them such that God is seen to be weighty, honored, majestic, and praiseworthy. Now, I want you to just kind of, if you can at all, just hold on to those definitions. And, and I'm going to try to make this like practical because that just might be in your head right now, but I, I want it to like influence everything that you do in your life. So the, the greatness of God shown to his creatures and then they, they see the greatness of God in how he's showing himself, how he's revealing himself and they respond and they respond in such a way that again, just shows how great God is and that he's majestic and honored and, and worthy of praise. Now, 
everything I said earlier, everything that God does, because he is the perfect being and because he can't be satisfied with anything less than himself, because there's nothing greater than himself, he does everything for himself. Now that sounds kind of selfish, but it's actually ends up being for our good. And so let's come with me to Isaiah and I'll get you to look at, at some of these. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, 8. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now notice in that verse there, there's Yahweh. That's who God is. That's his, his covenant name. He says, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. And I just want you to note name, praise, and glory in that verse. Now Isaiah 48 and verse 9, let's, let's go there. Isaiah 48, 9. And there's lots of these kind of verses throughout Isaiah. But uh, this, is a, this is a great one here. Isaiah 48, 9. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, I'm going to just ask you some easy questions to kind of draw some of these things out from the text here. But in verse 9, why did God defer his anger? Easy question for somebody. Just look at verse 9. Why did God defer his anger? Thank you, Lauren. For his name's sake. Any other reasons that you see in there? For the sake of his praise. Okay, so God is angry with Israel, but he is deferring or, or restraining. Does somebody have the New American Standard? Anyone? Nobody, nobody that's willing to admit it? Okay, that's okay. Uh, New American Standard. Uh, I think it says restrain there, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. Uh, there it is there, restrain. So verse 11 then, God says, I will do it, or in the New American Standard, he says, I will act. And according to verse 11, why does God say he's going to act? Or why does God say he's going to do what he's going to do? For my own sake, yeah. And that's, that's emphasized w with this double repetition, for my own sake, for my own sake. So God is doing things for his own sake. And what I want you to notice here, and you probably already can tell, is that these things are basically synonyms. God's name, God's name is, represents his character, right? God's name represents his attributes, which we just said was the same thing as God's glory. Now, God's 
praise is also their parallel. And so God's praise is his glory, is his name, uh, or is his, his sake, right? For his purpose. Now, another word that scripture uses, and I haven't given you one here, but he, he often says that he does things because of his good pleasure or because of his pleasure, because he, because he wants to. And so when we ask, what does God want to do? Well, he wants to display his glory. He wants to um, magnify his praise. He does things for the sake of his name, which is, uh, again, another way just to say that he does things to manifest his attributes and who he is. And so those are synonyms, his praise, his name, and his glory. Let's go to the, the Psalms then, and let's go to Psalm uh, 79 and verse 9. Psalm 79, 9. We see the same thing again. <clears throat> he says there in Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Now, one of the things I, I should just kind of point out here is, is in Hebrew, and especially in Hebrew poetry, there's often these parallel lines where the, the top line and the, the line right underneath it, those two things are synonyms, or those two things go together. And then the, the second part of the first line and the second part of the second line are, are together as well. And so we see there that at the end of verse 9, there's for the, the reason that the psalmist is asking for um, for this help is for the glory of your name and parallel with that is for your namesake. And so the glory of God's name and his namesake, those are going together. And this help that he's asking for and this deliverance goes together with his salvation and atonement for sins. And so just see that there that the glory of God and his name, those are those are parallel. And then let's go to one more here. Psalm 102 and verse 15. Psalm 102, 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. The kings of the earth rule the nations and the name of the Lord and his glory again, are, are synonymous things. Now, another thing we could add, and again, I didn't bring out a bunch of scriptures, at least not yet, on this, is that uh, another synonym that we could see, especially in our response to this, is the fear of the Lord. Often scripture uses this idea of the fear of the Lord, and to fear the Lord is to revere the Lord in such a way that it makes you to turn away from your sin. And so fearing the Lord is really a, a recognition of his glory and his greatness that causes you to, to respond to him in, in ways that he approves and according to his word. Now, again, God is doing all things that he does for his glory, or he's, he's another way to say this is God is doing what he does to set himself on display. Uh, uh, Brad Bigney said one time, um, God's glory is God kind of putting himself out there on display. And again, that's not a selfish thing in God because the greatest thing God can do for us is display to us the greatest good, which is God himself. 
Now, God's doing everything he does for his glory, and I'm not going to necessarily prove that with Scripture. I think that's a self-evident fact. But God is doing everything that he does for his glory. And now I want to kind of bring this back to where we started. So we see that God is doing everything that he does for his glory. He saved us for his glory. And when God saves us for his glory, we receive all kinds of good benefits. And what happens then, or what can happen, is that we can lose sight of the fact that it's actually all about God, right? Because, because we are so blessed by the forgiveness of our sins and by the, the, the mercy that God has shown us that we can forget that it's actually all about God and not about us. Now, in the end, it really is a benefit for us, but, but fundamentally, everything that God is doing is not for us. It's for him and for his glory. And so we can make ourselves the end or the center of everything instead of God. But we, as a, as a local church, we're committed and our foundational belief is that we have a, a high view of God. And we are called to glorify God with our lives. Now, where would you go in Scripture, and, and I have lots of them, but where would you go in Scripture to show that we are to glorify God with our lives? Anyone? Go ahead. Where's, what's the first scripture that comes to mind when you think about we're called to live for the glory of God? Colossians 3.18. I was thinking 17. Why don't you tell me what 18 is? <laughs> let's, go, let's go there. Let's, that's a great one. Thanks, John. Colossians uh, While we're going to Colossians 3, you can think about the one that you, you would say here. Colossians 3. Actually, there's, there's really two here that I wanted to look at. <laughs> Colossians 3.18, wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting. John, you just had to get that in here, didn't you? <laughs> I just... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. John is just testing me to see if... That's great. <laughs> you know, if I was funnier, I could come up... I could have really done something with that, but... Um, okay, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So everything that you do and I do, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now we just saw that that name is the same as his doing it for his glory, right? So we're to do it in the name of Jesus. That is, we're to do it for his sake or for his praise, that people might see how great and awesome our Savior is. And, uh, and we're to do it with this attitude of thanksgiving as well, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So that's really, really great. Colossians 3.25 is another very uh, similar verse. No, that is not right. So I've got, so he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done. What, that is not the verse I was thinking. Um, 
There it is, 323, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord and not for, not for men. There's another kind of a, a way to say that, that we're to do whatever we do for the Lord. Now, the context there is in our work, but again, whatever we do is to be done for for his sake. Where, where else would you go to show that we are, as Christians, called to live for the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 is a, a great one and uh, has the word glory in it. Uh, I have it here in my notes. Whatever then, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So even something as simple as eating or drinking, we're to do that for the glory of God. Uh, anyone else? What else? Where else would you go? Matthew five, sixteen. Yeah, great. In the in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We'll look at that this next Sunday. And um, that's, a great, that's a great verse. Whatever you do, or, or sorry, that we're to, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and, and, and they're to come to the conclusion as they see us working for the Lord that our God is great and majestic and worthy of praise, that they might give him glory and say, wow, what a great God those people have that they can, can act in those ways. Um, anywhere else that comes to mind? Uh, if Ecclesiastes 12 is one that, that, that came to my mind, that we're to fear God, and keep his commandments. I think that ultimately points to the same reality. We're to have such a high view of God ourselves that we obey him and keep his commandments and do things based on this high view of God that we have. Second Corinthians 5.9 is a good one as well. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And Paul's there talking about whether I'm I'm in heaven or whether I'm at home in or, or whether I'm, I'm at home in heaven or sorry at home on the earth in my physical body or whether I'm absent in heaven. My aim and our aim as believers is to be pleasing to Him. And there's more places and and there's some great places we could go and 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 show you this, um, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave that for now. Because I have a, we're, we're going to try to end these nights at eight o'clock. Um, let's go to one more. Let's go to my favorite one. Uh, let's go to Second Corinthians, chapter five. We'll do my favorite two in Second Corinthians. Second 
uh, Corinthians 5 and verse 14. Paul says there, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And what we see in that verse is that Christ died for us so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for him, the one who died for us and rose again on our behalf. And so the, the, the love of Christ in, in Paul's ministry, that's what he's talking about here, in his ministry and all the trials that he faces in his ministry, he has come to this conclusion that since Christ died for him and Christ died for believers, then therefore, because of that, that means that we have all died and we, we really died to ourselves, so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so that is what, what Paul concludes about the gospel, that, that because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, the, the response, and in fact, it's a guaranteed response, therefore all died, he says. And so there's been something that's happened to us in our regeneration that causes us to live for the Lord. Now, if we just go back a couple verses, we can see what that thing is that happened to us. Second Corinthians 4 and verse um, 3 to 6, these are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul in chapter 3, or yeah, Paul in chapter 3 is talking about the, the glory of the new covenant ministry. And he, he comes up with, with like a, an objection. Hey, Paul, and, and this is kind of like a hypothetical objection. Paul, you're going on and on about how glorious your new covenant ministry is. Well, how come it doesn't work on everyone, Paul? You know, there's lots of, in fact, you're getting beaten and persecuted in, in city after city. How this doesn't seem very glorious to me. And, and Paul responds to this hypothetical objection in verse 3 of chapter 4. And he says, even if our gospel is veiled, that is, if there's, if there's something covering our gospel um, so that people can't see it. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if I'm preaching this glorious gospel and there's certain people out there who can't see it, Paul says they're from this category that he calls those who are perishing. And in the case of those who are perishing, the devil, the God of this world, the small g God of this world has blinded their minds. And, and they're not seeing something. There's a veil over their eyes. And what is that veil? Or, or what is it that they don't see? Well, look, look at verse, the end of verse 4. They don't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And just to make that real simple for you, they're not seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, right? These, these lost people who the, the God of this world has blinded their minds, they're not seeing the glory of Christ. And Paul says in verse 5 then, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, 
light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, what's happening here in verse 6 <clears throat> is that Paul is kind of saying, I'm not in this group from verse 3 of those who are perishing. I'm in this other group of people who God has shown the light in my heart, right? God has turned the light switch on, and now I am no longer blinded to this thing. I now see, and again, what do we see? We see the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. We see the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the difference here between a believer and an unbeliever is what they see in Jesus Christ. Um, and then look what, what happens then when, when, when there's this been this, this transformation, when the light turns on, verse 5, if you go back there, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. If, if Jesus has turned on the light, Christ is now your Lord. And now you live your life for his sake and for his glory and for his honor. In fact, it says there right at the end, we live as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We become your servants for the sake of Jesus because of this, this light has gone on and I see how glorious God is and now I want to live for him. This is the gospel. And so when I say that, that we have a high view of God, that's what I mean, is that, it, that this view of God has really captured our lives and really drives now everything that we do as his people. I mean that we live then for his sake and for his name and for his glory, and we find our joy in fellowship with God and not in the things of this world, not in anything else. Now, I was going to talk to you a little bit about the about what it even means to have fellowship with God. But, but all, just as a quick thing, it, it means that I see his glory and I see him working in the world and it delights my heart and it, it changes my life so that I respond back to him. So I see how great he is and I want to live for him and I respond back. And there's this, this kind of a two-way relationship between us and God. We seeing his glory as he works in the world, as he works in our lives, as he reveals his greatness through his word. And that now changes my life so that I respond to him. And then others then will join into this thing and see what God's doing in my life. And they will say, wow, that is, you have a great and awesome and majestic God that's worthy of praise. Now, hopefully that kind of brings it all back a little bit. And, and, and what, and maybe there's been a few jumps in the logic or whatever, but, but what I want to just kind of end with is <clears throat> this is what our foundational commitment is as a local church, that we have this high view of God, that we recognize him as the chief good. And what I wanted to ask in closing then is what, what's going to happen if we don't have a high view of God as a local church? Anyone want to try to try to just guess what, what, what would be the result if we don't have a high view of God? A high view of ourselves. That's exactly right, Philip. You know, if something's got to fill that void, right? If we don't have a high view of God, we got to be, and if we don't do everything that we do for him, then some other reason has to come in of why we do everything that we do. 
And that other reason is going to be ourselves in some way, shape, or form. Now, there's different ways and shapes and forms that, that this man-centeredness can come into the church. Uh, for example, we might make everything about our comfort, right? Whatever pleases, I don't know, you, you, you could almost do put anything in there. But again, that's, what, that's the point that I want us to realize is that if God and his glory and his greatness doesn't drive everything that we do, then we're going to turn the whole thing around and it's going to be about us in some way, shape, or form. And usually when that happens, it actually becomes about what unregenerate man thinks, right? We're trying to now please the world or please men instead of pleasing God. And no longer is Jesus our Lord, but we have some other Lord kind of driving us and, and moving us. And so something's got to fill that void. And, and what we'll see next time is that this high view of God means that we're going to submit to his word and do things the way that, that he tells us to do in his word. We're not going to be driven by men. We're not going to be driven by the culture. We're going to be driven by the word of God because it's all about him and we're living for him and his glory. And so that's going to be in in two weeks on a Sunday night, and uh, we'll talk about the Word of God and what that means for us as a local church. So, you know, we, I, I don't know, we, we did it. It's almost eight o'clock. Um, this is the kind of thing that we're going to, we're, I'm planning on doing these next Sunday nights, an, an interactive teaching style. You guys did great. Thank you for your interactions, and, um, and just thanks for joining us. So I think we're just going to kind of fellowship. Like I said earlier, we, we really would love to be doing FOSPA on these nights and then have coffee and snacks and stuff. But um, we're, we're, at least in this thing, we're submitting to the government here. We're not having FOSPA or snacks. And so you're going to have to, I guess, go home for your FOSPA and snacks. But we'll be here for a while and, and just fellowship. And so, um, yeah, let's just close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. <clears throat> we thank you for your word that shows us who you are. For all your attributes, we thank you that you are the, the summum bonum, the, the chief good, that you are our chiefest good, that all good comes from you. Uh, and we just praise you. We can't praise you enough. You are so great and so awesome. And we pray for ourselves as a local church that we would do everything for your glory and that we would conform our lives to you and your glory because you are worthy of our lives, of our praise. You are the, the greatest and highest and most exalted being imaginable. And we are so thankful for Jesus Christ and, the, and, and that you, through your Son, have brought us into fellowship with you, that you have brought us to yourself, that we might know you. What a privilege and what a blessing. Uh, we pray that you would, would bless us as we go from here. We pray that you'd watch over us this week and all we do we pray in Jesus' name, amen.